foundation is built on solid rock. Yeshua. Yeshua. The rock of our salvation on Solace Radio. From about the time that the nation of Israel became a nation, God began to do something all around the world that only now in these days are many people beginning to recognize what's taking place. But I'm here to give you testimony that God not only established the nation of Israel again in 1948, but in those very years there were men born who are now leaders of congregations uh, in this generation, and we are here to proclaim to you that we believe we're the last generation. We are seeing God, God do things now with the nation of Israel and with the people of Israel scattered throughout the nations that we have not seen since the time that the Messiah came. There are more Jews who now believe in the Messiah in the last 19 years than in the previous 1900 years. That's according to the rabbis. And there is a great movement amongst the Jewish people to recognize and turn to Yeshua as the Messiah. Not since back in the days of the New Testament. And the prophecy said that at the end of the age of the Gentiles, that God was going to do a wonderful thing by his spirit to the people of Israel, that he would be bringing to a close the great exile of Israel into all of the nations. Now, the song that we just sang, uh, sometime you need to go back and really look at those words again. Those are really prophecies about the last generation. And so the song that we have sung here is not just a wonderful little melody to kind of lift your spirits. Uh, they are prophetic and dark sayings from the prophets speaking to a final generation. I want to make a very specific statement to you uh, this morning in which that I will justify to you in the course of our two days together. The Torah, the books of Moses, have more to do with your future than they have to do with your past. The, Lord. the Torah is a set of writings that really can be summed up into the following words. It is the story of a generation of people who came out of captivity and were redeemed by the Lord and made free. That's what four of those books are about, specifically about the Exodus. And God's laws and commandments were given to them to make them free, a free people. The first book, Genesis, really just explained how in the world did they get down to Egypt to begin with? How did they get into this mess? But the Torah concludes with Moses speaking to a particular group of people. In fact, it's in the portion at the end of Deuteronomy in which the, it's entitled Nitzavim, which means standing. And essentially what Moses says is, just before the children of Israel crossed over into the river Jordan, into the land of Israel, he said, I am not talking to the people who are standing here today. So who are you talking to, Moses? Are you talking to the previous generation who heard the voice of God from the mountain? No. I am talking to that generation, he says, that will see the children of Israel cross over the Jordan, rebel against the Lord, disobey the Lord, who will then be scattered throughout all the nations of the world. And then that generation shall see the judgment of God come upon all of the nations, and God will restore and regather his people. I'm talking to that generation. And then he proceeds in Deuteronomy 32 to give what is called the second song of Moses. Now, Moses wrote two songs. 
This first song you're probably already familiar with. The horse and rider, he is thrown into the sea. How many of you have ever heard that song? You've sang that song. That's the first song of Moses. That was the song the children of Israel sang when they came out of Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea. They sang the song of Moses, which is the song of the Exodus that we have been delivered by the Lord. But Moses writes a second song. You see, there's going to be another exodus. An exodus that Jeremiah says will be the greater exodus. In fact, the day is coming that we will say the word exodus and we will not be referring to ancient Egypt. We will be referring to an exodus in which that the children of Israel came up from every nation of the world, from the north, from the south, from the east to the west, that will come up at the end of the ages. All Israel shall be regathered back to the Lord, and we will be delivered. And there is a second song written by Moses for us. In fact, the book of Revelation specifically says that at the end of the ages, that the saints in the tribulation shall sing two songs, the song of the Lamb and the song of Moses. That song that Moses wrote to us. You see, it turns out the Torah is a great prophetic story of how God intends to redeem his people from this world. And the pattern of what took place back in the Exodus is the same pattern that's going to be happening to another generation at the end of the ages. You see, there's going to be another Pharaoh who will not remember Joseph. Only this Pharaoh that will be coming to the world will not remember the son of Joseph. And he will rise up and he will oppress us. And you and I will be made to make bricks without straw. And then we will be delivered by the hand of God by great judgments. And we will be taken out of Egypt by the hand of God. And we will make our way to a mountain, not Mount Sinai this time, but to one called Jerusalem. And there we will be with the Lord. And we will dwell with the Lord in his kingdom. Now, it's a wonderful story. And part of what we're going to do is we are going to cover some elements that come from the teaching of Moses that I'm really here to teach you is really your faith that you think you understand from the New Covenant. You can just get it out of your mind right now that you think that the New Covenant came to replace the other one. I have news for you. No covenants have been replaced by God at all. They all work together. And the word picture that I might give to you right from the beginning is the, that of a tree, a great tree. Uh, the roots are the Lord. He's our foundation. And the nourishment that the tree enjoys comes from that root system, from those things that God began from the very beginning. We have grown up as a small plant, and now we're a great tree. The trunk of this tree, which is the pedestal for all of the branches and the fruit and so forth, is what God did originally for us through the work of Moses. It's the Torah. It's this big, large thing that just kind of sits there and looks a little dull. And then you get beyond that into the branches, and that's where we have all the different things that have taken place, all the ministries, all of the shade, all of the leaves, all of the fruit. And there's this great tree. I would remind you that the Scripture teaches us that a man of God is like a tree planted by rivers of water. Amen. And those people who would teach to you that the most important part of the tree 
is the branches where the fruit is at, and we should be pursuing the fruit. Brethren, I have news for you. If that branch is not connected through the trunk of that tree down to that root system, it's dead and dying branches searching desperately for roots. Amen. And our faith has roots. Our Messiah, we know to be the Messiah, not because we just tell ourselves to believe it and to have faith to believe it, because we have evidence and we have proof. And I'm here to advocate to you that Yeshua of Nazareth is the Messiah and that he did come and he did do the work of redemption for us, but it's not yet complete because we're still waiting for the final redemption and the full restoration of all of his people. And all that's been going on for the last 2,000 years is setting the stage for one generation. The greatest generation that will live on this earth, the one that God has been planning from the beginning in the Torah that will manifest and reveal the real king of this place and to defeat his enemy so that we might live in his kingdom and be with him. The fact is, a lot of us in our faith, we look back at the Bible and we look back at the ancient stories and we say, well, uh, you know, gee, we're not like those folks back, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We're not like the time of the prophets and the ancients and back in the time when Yeshua was walking around. You know, we're, we're us. You know, here we are here in Canada, out in the wind-driven snow plains, you know. And uh, who, who are we? you know, as compared to all of the things of the world. I have, I have news for you. The scripture specifically says, the prophets specifically say, that when this great final redemption and restoration begins to take place, that the Spirit of God will begin in the remotest parts of the earth. And it will start with the hearts of people in the remote parts of the earth. And it will swell up and grow. And it will not be the move of men. It will be the move of the Spirit of God, and every person that will be a part of it will give testimony to that the Spirit of God brought me here, to this place. Now, this little assembly, I have news for you. I travel all over the world. I travel all over the United States and places, and I'm meeting assemblies just like you. Same questions, same issues, same testimonies. It's, I wish you could see what I've seen. Just in my lifetime. I wish you could see what I've seen the Lord doing. I myself have been a part of this now for uh, over 20 years. And I can remember the days when it was just me. I remember the day when I cried out to the Lord. And I said, Lord, don't you have like one one more person who like thinks like this, like me? Because you've told me that truth is established by the evidence of two or three. If it's just me, then it can't be the truth. Can't you find me one more Jew who believes like me? And he did. The man that I met and the Lord gave to me was a man by the name of Eliezer Erbach. Eliezer Erbach was a survivor of the Holocaust. He lost all of his family in Poland. He was a pioneer of Israel, fought in the War of Independence of Israel, became a believer And then he came to the United States, and he was a part of the American Board of Missions to Jews, ABMJ, small little organization, changed to Chosen People Ministries. And he went about, one man at a time, one Jew at a time, leading them to the Lord and teaching them. And I'm one of the men that he met. Of most of the men that he was involved with, they are leaders in the Messianic movement today. 
Most of us are leaders. It began very small. In fact, about, oh, let's see, going back about 20 years ago, there was another man who was in the early days. His name was Dr. Daniel Fuchs. Dr. Fuchs was then speaking 20 years ago, and he was he was trying to give us a sense of what was happening. And he was referring back to 15 years earlier. So what we're really talking about is something that was 35 years ago. Dr. Fuchs said 35 years ago, there were five Jews who believed, five Messianic Jews in the world. Five. He knew their names. He knew their wives' names, their anniversary dates, their addresses, and their phone numbers. There was only five of us. Five Jews who would say, I'm a Jew and I believe in Yeshua as the Messiah. And the day that he was speaking, he was speaking to 2,000 leaders. He said, you, you have no idea what I've seen just in 15 years, from five to 2,000 leaders. It's 20 years later. There are now hundreds and thousands of groups just like you. You just don't know about it. That are popping up all over the world. In every nation. In every hemisphere of the, of the globe. Messianic groups. They come from Jewish backgrounds. They come from Christian backgrounds. And they have all done what the prophets said. They have turned back again to Moses. And they have asked the question, where is the God who led us through the depths of the sea? Where is that God who delivered Israel from the Red Sea? We need that God. You know, the God of the Exodus. The God that has this great plan to redeem his people and to establish a people that would proclaim his name as creator and redeemer. Now, let me also say, and I've already heard it shared with me, that maybe you've heard some of my teaching before that I'm a little bit, I I say profound, but they said provocative. (laughs) (laughs) I've shared this story already earlier um, this morning. When I was 12 years old, that's when I really came to know the Lord. I was 12 years old. I lived in Kansas, and... um, I saw the movie, The Ten Commandments, and I was a firstborn son, and I knew I was Hebrew. I mean, we didn't have a Hebrew lifestyle. There was no synagogue. We were in Kansas. There were two things you didn't want to be in Kansas when I was growing up. One was black. The other was Jewish, and my father always told me, if anybody asks about my ethnic background, you tell them you're an American, and he said it would be safer that way, and my mother, what she always told me was, if anybody asks about my background, Uh, just kind of skirt the question, but what that I should always do is pray and thank God I was born in this country else I might not have been born. So that was the sum and total of my heritage, really, when I was a young boy. But I saw the movie The Ten Commandments and I heard the story of the Exodus for the first time. And me being a firstborn son scared the living daylights out of me. You remember the firstborn of the ones who died, you know, in Egypt. And I remember I went home that night. I believe that story. I knew those were Hebrews, and I knew that we were the people from those people. And and uh, I begged God. I mean, I in tears. I begged God to save me. I didn't. I didn't know. I I didn't know. I I had a maternal grandmother who told me about Jesus. So I said, Well, if that's his name, I'll call upon Jesus. I'll Jesus save me. You know, whatever your name is, God save me. My testimony is is that basically the Lord preserved me and protected me until about the age of 20. And at the age of 20, when I was in the Navy, 
And as a young man, well, then I hooked up with some other brethren who are part of the Navigators. I don't know if you've ever heard of that organization, but it's a single men's military ministry where they disciple young men. And I got involved with some of those men, and they got me into the Scripture, and they began to teach me, and I learned how to pray, and and I began to learn about my faith. And from that point, I basically was a a Baptist. (laughs) I didn't know what it was. I started going to a Baptist church, you know, and so I became, ultimately later up by the age of 30, I became a Baptist minister. So part of the testimony that I bring to you is from a Hebrew background, but also I'm a good Baptist, you know, I was, and so if you hear me poke a little stuff of the Baptist, I have a right to do, I was one, you know, and I was a Baptist minister, and I can speak with authority that what they believe and what they really do, because I was one, I know. But about the time I became a Baptist minister, that's when the Lord said, okay, Monty, great, uh, I want you to be a Jew now. I said, God, if you want me to be a Jew, I mean, these Baptists will boot me out of here. And sure enough, they did. Praise God. <laughs> and I started believing in the whole Bible, not half of it. And I found out that the God, who's the God of the Old Testament is exactly the same God who's the God of the New Testament. And this business about, well, it seems like God was kind of an angry God back there in the old one, but he's kind of a nice God up here in the front one. Forget all that. That's not true. I have news for you. The God that we serve is the God of creation. He does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And what he said back then is just as true today as it was then. But what we have today is we have a religious system which has come in to replace what Yeshua and the apostles said. And it's no different a mistake than what happened to Israel. Because in Israel, they had a religious system made up of the Pharisees and Sadducees who came in to replace what Moses And the prophets said, and Yeshua in his day, specifically speaking to my ancestors, said, you are a people, as the prophet Isaiah said, in which that your lips honor me, but your hearts are far from me. And you prefer the precepts of men to the commandments of God. Now, that's what Yeshua said to my ancestors 2,000 years ago. And I guarantee you that if Yeshua was standing in this assembly today, he would speak of us the exact same words. Now, maybe you're not following after Pharisees and Sadducees, but we as a people, and particularly as a generation, and I was one of them, we were a part of a religious system that was constructed by the church fathers in opposition to what Yeshua said and what the apostles said. Part of what I want to share with you today is essentially prove to you that what Moses was talking about is what you believe in. It's what you've always been pursuing, which is about the Messiah. And the way to do that, to explain that to you, is I need to show you the Messiah is right back there in the Old Testament, right there in the words of Moses. And when you see this Messiah that you believe in, Yeshua, Jesus, whom you believe in. And when you suddenly see that that's who Moses was talking about, that it's right there, then you'll be able to connect and say, oh, my goodness, you know, maybe we ought to pay attention to what Moses is saying, because we know that the pinnacle of our faith, we know the truth of our faith is what the Messiah has said. I am not here to offer you a substitute from what you have been taught, which is that you should be pursuing the Messiah as diligently as you can. I am here to advocate that. 
But I'm going to show you the Messiah that he described of himself, not that other men describe of him. If you will, turn in the book of John, chapter 5, at the end of that chapter, to verses 46 and 47. And this is what the Messiah said about himself. Verse 46, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let me put it in another context for you. If you don't understand what Moses was talking about, how in the world will you understand the Messiah that the Moses prophesied to come? If you don't understand and don't believe what Moses and the prophets said, how is it that you can then claim to believe in Yeshua the Messiah? Because Yeshua is telling us very plainly, if you don't believe in Moses first, you won't believe in him. If you don't understand what Moses was talking about, you won't understand him. And in particular, he's saying, you won't understand what I'm telling you. Now, we have a lot of men going around today. I used to be one of them. Who went around telling all the believers, all you have to do is concentrate on what Jesus said, what Yeshua said. Just just pay attention to him. And you don't have to worry about the Old Testament. All that stuff has been fulfilled. It's been done away with and so forth. And some people just go back to the Old Testament for the purpose of uh, looking at a little history. Or I'll, I'll tell you what's even better. We, we use it for content to make up Sunday school stories for children. Or we make plaques out of some of the words and we sell in Christian bookstores. But we really don't believe those words. We don't really pay attention because they're really not about us. They're about the Jews, remember? They're about Israel, and, and, and we're not Israel. We're, we're the church. Brethren, I want to remind you about something, and you know this to be true. This future wonderful place that we're all getting ready to go to, we're all planning on going to, this new Jerusalem. When all this is done, this new Jerusalem that's going to be coming down you know, that we're supposed to go to, you know, that has the 12 foundation stones named after the apostles, has the 12 gates named after the 12 tribes of Israel. Just which gate were you planning on using to go in there? There's no gate called Baptist or Presbyterian or Lutheran or Catholic or Gentile. There's not one gate named after that. There is no first Baptist of Jerusalem in the kingdom. Time out. Why not? Because maybe it's not right. When I was 12 years old and I became a believer, the Lord and I had a very interesting conversation. 12-year-old boy. I remember this prayer. I think the reason why I remember it is because the Lord was in a strange sort of way to a little 12-year-old boy setting me up and preparing me for what I would be doing and what I'm doing today. You see, at 12 years old, I something inside of me welled up and said, Lord, what if we got it all wrong? What if, what if everything that we understand to be right is not right? And everything that we think is right and good and holy about you, our faith in you, what if, what if, what if we've got it wrong? What if everybody's got it wrong? What would we do? Kind of profound thought for a little 12 year old boy. One of the things I concluded right off the bat, we wouldn't be able to deliver ourselves. If we've got it wrong, we, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to save ourselves. We, we wouldn't know the difference between right and wrong. And so I said to the Lord, and it was kind of a first step of real trust for a little 12-year-old boy, and I said, well, Lord, if, if that ever happens, would you save us? Would you, by your spirit, come and deliver your people? Well, brethren, I have news for you. That is what is happening. Amen. 
That's really what's been happening to Israel all along. The whole history of my ancestors is we get the good things from the Lord and we foul it up. We get the blessings and we foul it up. We get the good stuff and we mess it up. We mess up everything. And the Lord continues to show himself to be our Savior and Redeemer by redeeming us, from even saving us from ourselves. Well, this God who does this with the ancients also does this with us today. I am here to advocate to you and to show you how those words are true that Yeshua said. Had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. And by so doing, I want to wake up within you your faith that you've had for a long time. Maybe you've gotten complacent with. Maybe you think there's not anything too new about it. I mean, we've been there, done that. We've done the church thing. We've we've even had some experiences with the Holy Spirit, and we've done this and seen this movement and seen that. You know, it, you know, we're just people. Well, I have news for you. There's a lot more about our faith. There's a lot more about what God's doing than has ever been understood before because the message I'm bringing to you today is what God is getting ready to do is far greater and exceeds all that he's done before. Hallelujah. And I'm talking about talking from the mountain and the children of Israel hearing his voice. I'm talking about the Messiah coming in the flesh to walk among us. I'm talking about there's bigger things yet to happen. And they're going to be happening to this generation. And by the way, all he's doing right now with us is gathering the audience. So we can get ready to see it. And it's what's been talked about by Moses and the prophets, the Messiah himself, and all of those that have written the scripture to speak of this great moment when the final redemption will begin to take place. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And let us begin to see how Moses spoke of the Messiah. My Bible reads, I'm pretty sure that yours does as well, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Praise God. Thus the Bible begins. There are seven Hebrew words there. And I'm not trying to impress you with my Hebrew. I just want to be technically accurate so that you know what I say to you is the truth. In the Hebrew, what is actually said there is Bereshit bara Elohim et Hashemayim ve'et haretz. There are seven Hebrew words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Only six words have been translated. There's a word there that's not translated. Been sitting there all along. Now to the sages of Israel, the rabbis, there's a great mystery. There's a word there that's not translated into any language. You don't, the only way you get it is from the Hebrew. Because it's a non-translatable word. It's the fourth word, the middle word of that passage. It's made up of two Hebrew letters. The first letter and the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's the word et. It's spelled with an aleph and a tod. Now, I would remind you that in the book of Revelation, when the apostle John was getting ready to receive the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah, that the Messiah came up to him. It was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. That was Sabbath, by the way. And he came walking up to him, and he said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I got a question for you. Do you think this Hebrew Messiah, talking to a Hebrew prophet, spoke to him in Greek? I don't think so. I don't think so. 
I think he spoke to him in Hebrew. And if he spoke to him in Hebrew, he said, I am the Aleph and the Tob. I am the first and the last. And it's the great answer to the sages of Israel. Because the sages of Israel have been asking, who or what is the Aleph Tob in Genesis 1-1? Now, John, the apostle, will write to us in his gospel, in John 1-1, he will say these words, In the beginning, Bereshit, you know, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. It's sitting right beside Elohim. And the Word was God, and that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he was the Son of the Father. He was the Messiah. Aleph Tav is the Messiah being introduced to us from Genesis 1.1. It's exactly as Moses said. It's exactly as Yeshua said of Moses. Had you believed Moses, you would have believed also in me. For he wrote of me from the very beginning. Our Messiah is not created. He is the creator. In fact, John says that. And nothing came into being except by him. Amen. He is the creator. He is God. And throughout the course of the scripture, we will have manifested to us, as God has made real to us, where evidences will be presented to explain to us who the Messiah is. So when John wrote in his gospel, John 1.1, he was talking about Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, Bereshit was the word, remember? So John is trying to explain to you what Moses said. But if we don't go back and read what Moses said, how in the world are we ever going to understand this or know this? Now, this is just a sampling. I have news for you. There is not a passage, a story in the Torah that Moses gives that isn't about the Messiah. In fact, to Torah teachers, there are definite signs and indicators to us that will tell us every time Moses is doing it. One of those signs is any time Moses will repeat an expression, every time he repeats a phrase or repeats a word, it's like neon lights to a Torah teacher. This is about the Messiah. This is all about the Messiah. In fact, a Torah teacher who will teach you the full scope of the Torah, he will tell you there are four levels to the Torah when we go to teach the Scripture. And this is true uh, throughout Moses and the prophets. There is what we call the plain sense of the text. In other words, the straightforward, the reading. In fact, we Hebrews, we refer to as the parashat. In other words, the pishat. It's, in other words, just the straight reading of the text. So when you publicly read the Scripture, you are teaching the parashat. You're teaching the public reading or the plain sense of the text. The next level is what we call study, which is called drash. And whenever we discuss the Scripture, we Hebrews call that a midrash. In other words, we'll, you talk about the verse, you try to show what you think it means, and that's where we try to hammer out and bring out where the truth and the principle of Scripture is at. What is, what is the truth that has been explained here? What's, what's the logic of the structure of it? The third level is called the remez level or the hint level. It's really about something else. It's about, it says this, but it's really about this. 
The Ramez level of the Torah is all about the Messiah. It's all about the Messiah. And then we have a final level, which is called the Sod level, the mysterious level. Those are the evidences that tell us that these words were not written by men, because no man is that smart, in which that mysteries are revealed. Now, some have gone too far with that. In the Hebrews, we call them Kabbalists. They're the Hebrew mystics. And these are the things that deal with signs that God will give us uh, that will indicate to us that it's that's the creator, the eternal one, whose wisdom and understanding is at work here. And this is where all things that have been created work together, where we can see, for example, this is numerology, and every number in the scripture is very significant. Every number. Every letter that is used, the way a word is spelled, is significant. In fact, you don't know this, but in the Hebrews, every letter in the Hebrew alphabet is a teaching. Every letter is a teaching. And David was trying to explain that to some of you when he wrote Psalms 119. In Psalms 119, every section of that psalm starts out with a specific Hebrew letter. And if you really understood what those Hebrew letters meant, then you would understand what David was trying to say about that letter. He's trying to give you the teaching of that. Because if you can get the teaching down to every letter, you can take certain words that God has used in the scripture, take that word, and really understand what that word means. Let me take you to an example of what I'm talking about. Do you remember Moses? um, He's out in the wilderness, and the children of Israel, uh, they're very thirsty. In fact, uh, they've been traveling around, and, and they've run out of water. And Moses comes in before the Lord and he says, Lord, uh, we need water. Uh, if we don't get water, I, I fear that the children of Israel will even stone me. Well, there's a lot to that story. The children of Israel weren't going to stone Moses, but he was kind of trying to motivate the Lord. <laughs> so the Lord said, okay, okay, Moses, all right. Moses, get your staff. Gather the elders of Israel. Go out to the rock. Speak to the rock, and the waters will come forth for the people. Well, if you remember the story, Moses gathered his staff. He gathered up the elders of Israel. He went uh, up before the people, and he was still kind of motivated about, caught up in his emotions. And he says, you rebels, you know, what do I have to do? Make water come out of a rock? And he took his staff, and he struck the rock. Water came forth, and Moses lost his ticket to the promised land. Moses didn't get to go to the promised land because of this. Now, the sages go through and they try to explain, why did Moses lose his ticket to the promised land? You know, they said, well, he was angry. In fact, they've got about a list of about 15 different mistakes that Moses made there. But they never list the one that is given in the scripture that God said. Because here's what God said. Moses, you're not going to the promised land because you didn't believe me. Believe me? Hey, guys, Moses is the guy that walks up and talks to God. (laughs) You know, in fact, God said of the relationship that Moses had with him, he says, he's not like a prophet. You know, a prophet, he says, I talk to a prophet through visions and dreams and dark sayings and so forth. But with Moses, I speak face to face. Moses is the guy that wrote the Bible. You know, the first five books. So we we have a Bible today because of the work of Moses. And we're going to stand up and say, he didn't believe in God. This is the guy that goes, talks to God. God gives him the commandments. He comes down, tells us the commandments. 
He writes the Bible for us, writes the Torah for us, and God says, you didn't believe me. What in the world is that? By the way, you know, if we could answer that question about what the word believe means there, it would tell us a lot about our faith today because we're supposed to believe in God too. If you go to the word, believe. And by the way, that's one of the first places in the whole Bible that starts talking about believing in God. The Torah, the first place it starts talking about believing in God. If you take every letter of that word, which is aman, aleph, min, nun. The first letter, aleph, means strength. The letter mim means waters. And the letter nun means living or coming to life. The word believe means the strength of the living waters. You see, that's what he was doing. He was out there to give them living waters so they might live in the wilderness because without water you die. You know what Moses did? He was supposed to teach the children of Israel and all of us that if you want the living waters to believe in me, all you have to do is speak to the rock. You don't need the staff of Moses. You don't need the staff of Moses to receive the living waters. Speak to the rock. Maybe this is the reason why Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says, Brethren, don't you understand that the rock that was in the wilderness was the Messiah? And that when you speak to this rock of your salvation, he gives you the living waters so you might live. You don't need the staff of Moses. You need the teaching of Moses, which he erred in giving there. And the Lord said, that is such a devastating mistake you made, Moses. You're not going to the promised land. You messed up big time, buddy. Now, Moses will be in the ultimate promised land, but that was a lesson for us. You know what? Some of my brethren in times past have gone around and said, you know what? For you to receive salvation, you need the staff of Moses. You need to do all these Torah commandments. You need to do them exactly this way, the way we instruct you after the ways of Moses. And that's the way you get into the promised land. And Moses already taught us, you don't get in the promised land by the staff of Moses. I don't care how good you keep the Torah. Nobody is going to keep the Torah better than Moses. He wrote the Torah. And if you think that you can get salvation by keeping the commandments of God, by keeping the Torah, you are going to make the same mistake that Moses made. Moses needs a Messiah, just like us. And when you speak to the rock like he would speak to the rock, you too will receive the living waters. That's what he was supposed to teach. So when the Messiah came, guess what he said to us? If any man thirsts, let him come drink of me. For in him will spring up wells of living waters to eternal life. Hallelujah. Interestingly enough, the day he spoke that, in Jerusalem they were celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles at the altar. The great day of the feast. The greatest ceremony to be conducted in the temple at the Feast of Tabernacles. On that particular day, they dispatch a priest from the temple. And he's called the man who is sent. And they send him from the temple high, which represents heaven. And they send him down in Jerusalem to the pool of Siloam, which is down in the bottom of the city of Jerusalem, down near Gehenna. Gehenna means like the depths of hell. And he's the man who is sent down low. And he gathers up water from the pool of Siloam, which means he who is sent. And he brings this water back up to the temple. And he is led by a musician. 
who plays a flute. The musician is referred to as the pierced one. You know, the flute is a pierced instrument. And the pierced one shall bring forth the waters of salvation. In actual Hebrews, the water is called Yeshua. Hallelujah. The name of the Messiah. That's Jesus. That's his Hebrew name. Yeshua. The waters are named after Jesus. Yeshua. And they carry him up with this flute player playing. And all of the men of Israel, every teacher, every priest, every leader of Israel is in the temple to see this one ceremony. And when the priest enters in, they sound off trumpets to proclaim the king, the king of the whole world, the king of the universe. To announce he has arrived. And they take that pitcher of water and another priest with a silver pitcher of wine. And they walk up onto the altar. And it's the only time this ceremony is done. And they have two silver funnels. And they begin to pour into those two funnels. And they're funnels because they have a little tube out the bottom. And it sets alongside the altar so that as they pour into it, it begins to drain out along the edge of the altar. And this is the thing that every man of Israel wants to see. He wants to witness with his eyes these two things happening. The water and the wine streaming down the edge of it because we are operating on the belief, as Moses and the prophets have said, that the Redeemer of Israel, when he comes, he will bring us not only the blood of redemption to cleanse us from all sins, but he will bring the waters of salvation and we will see the outpouring of the Spirit of God. And they want to see that wine, which represents blood, and they want to see that water, which represents the outpouring of the Spirit of God, to run down and be a witness to it. And it's like a like the height of one of the men of Hebrew to see this ceremony as these two stream down the edge of the altar. At the moment this was happening, Yeshua cried out in the temple, If any man thirst, let him come drink of me. And the priest cried out and said, surely this man is the Messiah, for no man would say these words except he be him. That's the reason why John, who wrote the Gospel of John, proclaims to you, I am a witness that at the moment that Yeshua was pierced on the cross, I give testimony. I saw the water and the blood stream from him. That was a fulfillment, a huge fulfillment of a rather major prophecy of what the Messiah would do for us. You see, that's one little tiny example, and everything that we have given to us in the New Testament traces back to something profound and specific that Moses and the prophets told us. Amen. Every word in there. The reason why, the reason why that I'd never learned that when I was a good Baptist. When I, I didn't learn, I learned all these stories about Jesus and everything, but I didn't know that everything he said and everything he did was a fulfillment of the prophecy. The reason why I didn't know that was because nobody taught me Moses. I didn't know that was what the Messiah was supposed to do. I thought we concluded that he was the Messiah just because it seemed like a great idea. Besides that, everybody else was saying it. You know, my teacher said that he was the Messiah, so I said, okay, he's the Messiah. And the people that told me that, they were nice people, and I trusted them, and they told me about other truthful things. Why shouldn't I believe them? Let me take you back also to John chapter 1, where the uh, 
the apostle writes for us how Yeshua's ministry first began. John the Baptist was out there preaching in the wilderness, preaching the baptism of repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What's that mean? What do you mean the kingdom of God is at hand? The king is at hand. The king's getting ready to come. You know, the king is the most important part in the kingdom. So the king is getting ready to come, so repent. Get ready for the coming of the king. So there's a group of disciples. They're out there with John the Baptist, and he's preaching, and they're being baptized, which is a very Hebrew thing to do. It goes back to when the children of Israel first heard God speak to us from the mountain, because God told us to take a bath. Look what we heard what the Lord had to say. It's called a mikvah. And so we took a bath. So here's John the Baptist. He's doing the same thing Moses said. He said, take a bath. Get ready. We're getting ready to hear from the king. So that's what he's preaching. And when we take a bath, when we take a mikvah bath, that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be getting ready for something wonderful to happen. Amen. From the Lord. You know, that's to prepare us to, to hear the voice from the mountain, to receive the king. That's the, that's the meaning of that. So here he is, he's out there preaching, and we have some of the uh, disciples of John out there, and along comes Yeshua. And John the Baptist all of a sudden stops, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And we now have the story of five men. First guy, John, he's the one that wrote the Gospel of John to us. He's recounting these events. He tells us about another man by the name of Andrew. Andrew goes off to get his brother, Simon Peter. And he says to him, we found the Messiah. And then there's another fellow by the name of Philip. He runs off to get his friend Nathaniel. We have found him spoken of by Moses and the prophets. Who? Yeshua of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. You remember what Nathaniel said? Can anything good come from, you know, Nazareth? I don't remember anything in the prophecy about Nazareth. <laughs> You remember, and then there was the little interchange between him and Nathaniel when they come walking up. I have a question for you. Why do these men believe that he's a Messiah? Yeshua hasn't made any speeches yet. In fact, the only thing that we have recorded that he ever said was they walked up and they said, where are you staying? He said, come and see. What speech has he made? What prophecies have been fulfilled? What miracle has been performed that would cause these Hebrew men to believe that he's the Messiah? Why is it they're running off to their friends and saying, we found the Messiah. We have found him spoken by Moses and the prophets. On the basis of what do they believe he's the Messiah? Maybe we should ask this question. Why do you believe that Yeshua of Nazareth is the Messiah? On the basis of what? You know what I've discovered? <sighs> kind of self-discovered about myself early on. And I've discovered it of other brethren. You know why people believe that Yeshua of Nazareth is the Messiah? They presume it to be so. We presume it to be so. That's the reason why we say, well, you just got to believe in it. Just presume it is what we're really saying. You know what? I have news for you, brethren. Presumption is not faith. Presumption is where false prophets come from. You presume anything to be right, you're going to make a fool out of yourself. That's not truth. Truth is based on the evidence of at least two or three. If you plan on having true faith, it better be on the basis of evidence. These men have true faith. They do not presume this to be so. They have evidence. What evidence? Let's go a little bit further, because this is what John does for us. He begins then to present some evidence for you and me. We who would read 
the Gospel of John. We have the testimony of these men, but then he begins to show us what the Messiah showed them. The first thing that happens is they load up and they go to the wedding at Cana. And Yeshua was invited to the wedding, but I'm not sure that the wedding party was ready to have Yeshua with a bunch of people. And so by bringing these other men, uh, they ran out of wine. They didn't have enough wine. So the mother of Yeshua came up to him and said, hey, they're, they're running out of wine. Can, can you help us out? Obviously, he had done this before. She knew this about him. And in fact, she, he said to her, he said, woman, what am I to do with you? My time is not yet, whatever that means. But in any case, he tells these servants how to take some water, and he makes wine. And we had this little story about how Yeshua made wine out of water. And John records for us, this was the first sign that Yeshua did in Cana of Galilee. Sign of what? Now, you've heard the expression, we Jews seek signs, Greeks seek wisdom. We Jews have been told to follow signs. So what's the sign to us? I'm a Hebrew. What what does that mean to me when I see him turn water to wine? Now, let's go a little bit further. The next thing that John records for us is Yeshua is back in Jerusalem, and he meets by night a Jewish ruler, a teacher of Moses. His name is Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes to him by night to speak with him privately away from other people. And Nicodemus, I think, starts to patronize Yeshua a little bit. And he says, uh, now, teacher, uh, we, we know that you've come from God, for, for no man could teach these things or to do these things that you're doing, except he be of God. Yeshua is not going to be patronized by him. He starts off and he says, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Born again? What are you talking about? How can, how can a, a person get back in the womb of their mother to be born again? And he says, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about being born of the Spirit and of water. Unless you're born of the Spirit and of water. And he says, I don't get it. And then Yeshua says something rather amazing. How is it that you are a teacher of the Torah and you don't know this? Did you know that the Torah teaches and absolutely insists that you must be born again? Amen. Torah. First teaching lesson of Torah teaches you must be born again. You've got a problem. I will take you back to the story of Adam. Adam, you know, our father who brought sin into the world. And death. The scripture records for us in Genesis 5 that after Adam was made, that all men thereafter are made in the image of Adam. And that you and I are now subject to the things that happened to our father, Adam. Adam was made in the image of God. God breathed his spirit into him and made him a living being. Adam, man, was made in the image of God. You and I, however, are made in the image of Adam. Adam was made in the image of God. You and I are made in the image of Adam. And as a result, we die, just like our father Adam did. And what we need, if you plan on living, is you need to be born again of the Spirit of God so you can live. Hallelujah. 
That's what Genesis teaches in the first teaching portion. In fact, it specifically tells us that his son Seth, later on, not Seth, who is it? It's the other brother, the other son, was the first to call upon the name of the Lord. And we began a new path. You see, you can't be born again unless you call upon the name of the Lord. And you must have the Spirit of God in you like Adam had to make you a living person. And that's what Yeshua was talking about. Nicodemus, you're a teacher of Torah, you don't know this? What do you think Moses was talking about? See, it turns out that the Torah, what it's really supposed to be teaching you, is that you've got a problem. The Torah is the one that reveals transgression and sin and death, and it shows you got a problem. None of you are righteous. We'll prove it to you. We'll list God's commandments. Let's see who can keep them. Nobody keeps them. Not one of you is holy by the definition of holiness. Not one of you is clean. Not one of you is pure. Every one of you deserve death. Every one of you is guilty before the living God. So what the Torah does is as a tutor, it teaches us about we need salvation. So for those who would want to keep Torah so they can be saved, I have news for you. Torah explains to you why you're going to die. Amen. Tells you why you're not holy. It's God's definition of what's holy and clean and, and pure and right and proper and righteousness and so on. None of us do that. That's what it proves. But it also explains what the solution is. At the same time it's telling you about the need, it says, here's God's solution. This is the solution to the problem. You have to be born again. You need a new father. Not like Adam. You need a new Adam. One who will die, but who will come out of the grave and live again. And that's the reason why the New Testament tells us that the Messiah is the new Adam. And when it talks about Golgotha, the place where he died, let me tell you what the Hebrews know Golgotha means. It means the place of the skull. Whose skull? Adam's skull. Because we're looking for the new Adam who won't like be like the other Adam who stays in the grave. We're looking for the new Adam who comes out of the grave and can prove he has eternal life so we can be born again of the Spirit of God like man was originally breathed of the Spirit of God and became a living being. So he's asking Nicodemus, he said, don't you get it? What do you think Moses was talking about? Now John tells us something more happens. They leave there from Jerusalem and they go up to Cana again. And there, when they come into Cana, there's a, a distraught father from Capernaum up in the Galilee. And he's heard that Yeshua has come up into that region and his son is very ill, near to death. And the father has made the trip personally to come down to get Yeshua and compel him to come up to save his son. And it's recorded there for us in, in John 4 that the Father comes to him. And then Yeshua makes this incredible statement. He said, unless this people see signs, they will not believe. Now, I've heard a lot of preachers say, well, you know, that's, that's what we're talking about. You know, unless, you know, those Jews, they got to have signs. Uh, but we don't need signs. We just believe. And uh, that is not what Yeshua was talking about. That's not even close. He's giving you a spiritual principle. Unless you see the signs, you won't believe. So see them, is what he's saying. So he immediately turns to the father and he says, your son lives. And the father started running home. 
And on his way home, servants come and they meet him and they the next day and they say, your son is well, your son is well. He said, praise God. He said, when did he become well? About the seventh hour yesterday, the very hour Yeshua said, your son lives. John records for us, this was the second sign Yeshua did in Cana of Galilee. What sign? Why should I believe that Yeshua of Nazareth is a Messiah based on that? Well, why do we Jews, why do we Hebrews look for signs? Moses taught us that. When Moses was at the burning bush, and he was being dispatched by God to go back and deliver us out of Egypt, Moses asked the question, he said, Lord, why would the sons of Israel pay any attention to me? Why would they listen to me? And God says, I will give you signs so that they might believe that you've been sent from me. What signs did he give Moses? He gave him a sign where he could take water from the river Nile and turn it into blood. Blood, wine, we Hebrews, they mean the same thing. They both mean life. Wine, symbol of life. That's the reason why in Kiddush, every time we hold up a cup of wine to the Lord, we bless the Lord for life. That's the reason why the Messiah held up that cup of wine and he said it was his blood. We Hebrews, we keep kosher. We don't eat blood. They didn't have one bit of problem with this because we know wine, blood, mean the same thing, life. So turning water into blood, the children of Israel understood that was about life. Turning water into wine with Yeshua, same sign as Moses. Same sign. And so what was this second sign that he did in Cana of Galilee? Moses had a second sign. He could take his hand, stick it down into his cloak, pull it back out, and it's leprous, incurable disease, deadly, kill you. Put his hand back in his cloak, pull it back out, instant healing. Right now. Don't need no medicine, don't need no doctor, healed. Just like that. Instant healing. And that's what Yeshua demonstrated when he healed the son. I don't even have to go there. I don't even have to put medicine on. I don't even have to pronounce a prayer over. Your son lives. Instantly he's healed. The second sign of Moses. Third sign of Moses. He had a staff. Staff. And he could put that staff down on the ground and it became a serpent. He could pick that staff back up and it was a staff again. The prophecy says that when the Son of Man comes, the Messiah, he will be lifted up like Moses' staff. And if you recall in the wilderness, it's the smallest prophecy of the Messiah. It's the tiniest prophecy about the Messiah. Uh, the children of Israel were disobeying the Lord in the wilderness, and these fiery serpents came in and started to bite them, and people started getting sick and dying. And Moses went in and pled for the children of Israel, and God instructed him, take your staff, Moses, Take a bronze servant, wrap it around that staff, hold that thing up in the air, and when the people see it, they'll live. Look and live. And all those that looked upon the staff of Moses raised up with the serpent lived. So Yeshua kept saying to them, When you see the Son of Man lifted up, you will see I am. Now in your versions it says, I am he. And the word he is in italics, which means it's not in the original script. That's what translators have tried to make sense out of that. But what he said was, you will see I am. That's all he said. 
I am. What's that mean to a Hebrew? I am. Well, that's what God told Moses. When Moses said, whom shall I say to the sons of Israel has sent me? And the Lord said, you will say to the sons of Israel, I am that I am. You will say to them, I am has sent you. We know him as the I am God, the eternal God, the God who was, the God who is, and the God who will be. I am. And then he gave his ineffable name, the four-letter name, yod Hey bav Hey. Some pronounce Yahweh, Yahweh. King James tries to say Jehovah. They're trying to pronounce that name, this four-letter name. Yeshua said, when the Son of Man is lifted up, you will see I am. Did you know that when Yeshua was crucified and lifted up, they made a sign above it? I'm not making this up. They made a sign. And they wrote on this sign in three languages, Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. And they wrote out, Yeshua of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That's what Pilate put on that sign. And if you'll recall, the Hebrews, when they saw that, the religious leaders, when they saw that, they said, change that sign. Don't put that sign up. And you remember, Pilate says, no, I've written it, that's what's going up. And they stuck that sign. Why did those uh, religious leaders, why were they opposed to that sign? In the Hebrew, what he wrote was, and again, I'm not trying to impress you with the Hebrew, I'm just trying to show you this is for real. Yeshua Ha-Netzaret. Four Hebrew words, and the first letter of those four words is Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey, the unspeakable name of God that was given to Moses at the burning bush who said, I am the I am God. Hallelujah. Now to a Hebrew, I have seen all the signs of Moses. He has clearly shown me and proved to me he is the Messiah. He is the one that Moses and the prophets said would come. All I've given you is just three little ones. You want to see the whole list of all the signs and all the prophecies? Read the book of John. Everything John records for you is a prophecy being fulfilled. You remember that story about the um, about the father? Your son lives. Those words, just your son lives, send chills through me. As a Hebrew, because that's about Joseph. That's the story of Joseph that you've never heard because you've not been taught Torah. You remember the story of Joseph when Joseph was uh, put in the pit, sold by his brethren, and they, they'd all decided they wanted to kill him. And then Judah popped up and he said, oh, let's sell it. You know, Jews, uh, we always want to make a profit. You know, so Judah, he, he says, let's sell it. So to pass off the story, how are we going to explain to Jacob what happened to Joseph? They took his tunic and they slew a, a goat, ripped it to shreds, spilled blood all over it. And according to the tradition, it's Judah who went into Jacob and presented to Jacob, his father. And he said, do, do you recognize this? Do you have any idea what it would be like to be a parent and someone would bring in your child's clothing? with blood ripped to shreds, and it appeared that your child had been eaten by a wild beast. The shock that you would go through, the dismay you would feel, Judah did this to his father. 
There was a harm that was done here that was unspeakable to Jacob. It almost killed him. It almost killed him, Jacob, upon the news of it. Certainly changed him. A little bit later on in the story of Joseph, you're going to hear about a story about Judah and Tamar. Tamar was his daughter-in-law who had been married to some of Judah's sons and they had died. And, and Tamar worked it out to where she became impregnated by Judah because Judah thought she was a, a harlot. And uh, Judah, of course, a very righteous man. You know, when he finds out his daughter-in-law is pregnant, calls for her to be brought forth to be judged and burned. And, of course, he had traded his staff and his signet ring and cord, you know, for services rendered. And he hadn't gotten them back. And well, so when she came in, she said, the man who's impregnated me belongs to these. Says, do you recognize these things? And he had done to him what he had done to his father. Do you recognize these things? And it was very clear in Judah's heart, the Lord was talking to him. And that's the reason why he said, she is more righteous than I. He, what he was saying was, I'm unrighteous. Later, in the story of Joseph, all the story that we have of Joseph, all the brethren going up there to buy grain and, and so forth, Judah at the end, Joseph insists that Benjamin be brought. And you remember, Jacob didn't want Benjamin to go. He says, I've already lost Joseph. I, I, I can't dare to lose Benjamin, you know, the son of Rachel. And Judah assures Jacob, I will be a surety for him. I will guarantee you to you, Father, that I will bring him back. And so they take Benjamin up there, and they have a great time with Joseph. They get their grain and so forth. But Joseph has laid a trap for them. And he put his cup in Benjamin's sack. And so when they leave and they think, hey, we've escaped. We're all making it home and so forth. When the servants of Joseph stop their caravan, and he says, you've stolen our master's cup. And Judah says, well, nobody has stolen your cup. Any person who has that cup, let him die. And they go from every sack down to Benjamin, and here's the cup in Benjamin's sack. And Judah is beside himself. He promised his father he would bring him back, and he would be a surety for him. So here's Judah talking to Joseph. And he's pleading the case, not for Benjamin, not for himself, for his father Jacob, because he tells him of this story about how we used to have another brother. But when we told him that he had died, it almost killed him. If I go back now and I tell him that the other son, that he is not returning, that he has died, that he is gone, it will surely kill him. Even Joseph cannot resist. And Joseph reveals himself to his brethren. He said, I'm Joseph. I'm your brother. Now, the part of the story that you don't read, but is clearly there. And to the Hebrews, we consider this impassioned speech of Judah to Joseph to be the greatest repentant speech in the Bible when he pleads the case for his father, the distraught father. Because it's Judah who goes back to his father Jacob with gifts and treasures from Joseph. And he has to sit down before Jacob and he has to say, your son lives to the distraught father. And all Hebrews know the life of Joseph are the prophecies of the Messiah. And that's the message 
your son lives. To a Hebrew who knows the story of Joseph, that is more than sufficient to convince me. That guy's the Messiah. That guy has come fulfilling. He's the living word of God right in the midst of us. No man would know this wisdom except he be God. It comes down to even the simplest words. I was sent by my father. Those are the words of Joseph. The man who was sent by his fathers to see to the welfare of his brethren, who is rejected by his brethren, cast into a pit, but who will be raised up to rule over all of them. This is the story of the Messiah. This is the Messiah. Maybe that's the reason why he was called Yeshua ben Joseph, the son of Joseph. Maybe that's the reason why his brother's name, Benjamin, means the son of the right hand. Because the Messiah is the son of the right hand of the Father. And it's really a great story about how Judah repents. There's still a day coming when Judah will repent. You know when it will happen? When Joseph is revealed to him. Now, here's the kicker for you. You guys are from Joseph. You don't know this yet. You guys are from Joseph. It's in my best interest for you guys to be encouraged and strengthened in your faith to understand what in the world God is doing. Because your Joseph is going to help my brethren, Judah, to repent finally and really know who the Messiah is. And it's something that's to happen at the end of the age. Stay tuned to Solace Radio.